0: Welcome to episode 2121 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Well, here we go again. We're doing it. It's I'm team preview it. pod season. It's time. For the 12th year in a row, <laughs> we are previewing all of the baseball teams. I mean, you weren't there for all 12 of those years. No. But the podcast collectively, this is our 12th annual Effectively Wild preview series. So I'm <laughs> I'm excited. I am. I think this is going to be good. This is always informative. Yes. It's a good way for us to catch up on yeah. everything that's happened. It feels almost premature because some of the biggest free agents are still out there. Right. <laughs> so we will probably have to interrupt our team preview series to bring you news of major signings at some point bun, over bun, the bun. next few weeks. And hopefully they will be with teams that we haven't previewed yet. But right. we can always allow for the possibility that there will be some signings. This is not new. We've had off seasons before oh, we've yeah. previewing where even fewer free agents were signed. So right. we've been through it all. But people are excited, I think, that this is happening again. A lot of people find effectively wild through the team preview series. Yeah. It's a different vibe from our regular off-season stuff. Much more certainly. serious. Yeah. But it's a, a rite of spring or not quite spring, but it, it tells us that spring is at least arriving, right? <laughs> Pitchers and catchers are about to report and Effectively Wild is doing the team preview series.
1: Yeah, that groundhog saw his shadow or didn't, Mm -hmm. and so there will be spring or not. But we know that the real start of spring comes with the Effectively Wild team preview series and me going at least once per death chart. Wait, he's on that team now?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's why it's good, good to catch up for us to get our bearings again. And for those who have not been with us the previous 11 times, this is, the way it works now and has worked recently. We do two Teams per pod, and we do two preview pods per week with one non preview pod mixed in there. Yep. And we talk to people who cover those teams. So, typically, some sort of reporter, beat writer, someone who's in the clubhouse, not always, but we have some returning guests, some staples of the preview series, some new voices, and we just run down the big questions about those teams what they've done over the winter, what they might still do, the strengths, the weaknesses, what Would constitute a successful season for them. It will get you up to speed, even if you're not someone who follows that team personally. This is, I think, a good overview of Major League Baseball as a whole. It's a a good pairing with the BP annual that we talked about last week. This will get you ready for the season. So today... We are starting with the Mets and the Marlins. Yeah. Okay, maybe there's a sexier team that we could have kicked things off with than the Miami Marlins, but wow. we we do not choose the order. We <laughs> go in terms of projections. So yes. the way that we do this, there are projections on fan graphs right now. They're not the final playoff odds projections, but if you go to the projected standings page, you can get, or the, the projected depth charts page, mm-hmm. you get projected winning percentages for yes. each team taking into account the zips and steamer and depth chart playing time projections now they do not take into account schedule Correct. and strength of schedule that Correct. is what the playoff odds do so they're yes. slightly different but yes. it's just kind of a true talent neutral if everyone just played in the same <laughs> just jumbled up mess of teams this is how good they would be
1: and I have exciting news for you, Ben Lindbergh, and also our listeners, which is that by the time folks listen to this, the playoff odds, which do take schedule into account, will be up on FanGraphs. They launch on Wednesday, so that's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. But yeah, um, people are always like, "Why do you have two? What's the difference?" And you've mm-hmm. you've hit it, Ben. You've yes. hit the nail on the head, and I'm sure I'll never have to explain it over again. <laughs>
0: And the projections change, obviously, as the spring proceeds and people get signed and people get injured but we don't change the order of we the don't. previews. That would be chaos. Yeah, right. And it doesn't matter that much either. You know, <laughs> don't take <laughs> also, it too that- seriously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're gonna that- preview all 30 teams. The order will be roughly, as we have done for the past few years, the Silicon Valley style middle out structure where we start with the teams with the most middling projections, I suppose you could say, the, the closest to 500. And then we go out from there to the extremes. and and yep. we end with the best projected and worst projected team so that's roughly the trajectory and i think that's good as the season goes on as we build up to opening day then you get more of the contenders and also some of the truly terrible teams yeah we're starting in the middle the mets and the marlins both have 500 projections according to this page i don't know if one is is slightly higher if you go out a bunch of decimal places but the marlins (laughs) are listed on top of the Mets, and that is why the marlins will be the first team that we do wow in this episode yeah i know Ah. So Kevin Barral of Fish On First will be previewing the Marlins for us today. And Tim Britton of The Athletic will be talking about the Mets. Just a bit of news we need to get to before yeah. we embark on our projections, some some significant news. Yeah. So Excuse you. Uh, yeah. Bobby Witt <laughs> Jr.
1: Forever
0: Royal. Maybe a Forever Royal, right. So, I mean, I don't know how to describe this contract. Is it ultimately a seven-year deal? Is it an 11-year deal? Is it a 14-year deal? It's one of those newfangled choose-your-own-adventure kind of contracts with uh, options on both sides. But it's an 11-year extension, I guess we could say, with some caveats there.
1: Yeah, and I think that for Royals fans, you know, who are Mm -hmm. trying to get their head and heart around this. I think the most relevant way to describe it is probably a franchise record deal, right? Oh, yeah, by a lot. <laughs> the total dollar outlay here, whether, you know, I think regardless of whether or not um, Wit exercises any of his four, four out, opt-outs or the team um, decides to exercise its option after the guaranteed part of this contract, it is meaningful money. As Dan put it in his write-up, like it is a, a dollar amount that would be noteworthy even in New York or Los Angeles. Um, and mm-hmm. so is I think, particularly exciting and encouraging for a team like Kansas City to commit to a really good young player to be willing to spend this kind of money. You know, they are in the midst of trying to persuade the good people of Kansas City to, to fork over a bunch of money of their own uh, to yes. build them a new ballpark. So you have to imagine that that's operating in the background of this decision, but... Witt's rookie year was good but not phenomenal, mm-hmm. and then he took a pretty dramatic step forward, and the improvements that he's made defensively in particular, I think, just give him such a solid floor of production, provided he's able to sustain those, so really very, very exciting for the Royals. It feels so nice to say something just like—it just mm-hmm. feels nice to say a good thing about that team, you know? Yeah. We don't get to do that very often. Forever Royal. I guess the Royals want to be Forever Royals, too. That's sort of in the— Yes, whole description. <laughs> S-
0: Sal Perez's eighty-two million dollar extension was the previous contract record, so yeah, this completely blows this away. I mean, this is yeah. almost a three hundred million dollar guarantee. Uh, again, I mean, he could opt out. Earlier, or it yes. could go up to 377 million over 14 yeah. years. That's the maximum, although it's hard for various reasons to see it ending up that way. Just right. uh, you would have to really thread the needle where. Yes. Because, like, the last three seasons of that are $89 million team option, three year team option after the 2034 campaign. That's a long way away. But it's hard to imagine him both not opting out before that and then also the Royals wanting to exercise that three-year team option there. So maybe he will not be a Royal that entire time, at least under this contract, but it's a long, long time and it's really exciting for this franchise and it, I think, helps put the lie to any, oh, only big market teams can sign their players to big extensions, anyone could sign their homegrown stars to this type of deal and it's nice to see the Royals do that regardless of the reasons even if it is that hey they want some public ballpark funding and doing this and also investing in the major league roster as they've done this year maybe that pushes that over the line you know I mean <laughs> hopefully that's not the sole reason to do this I think there's a great reason to do it which is that Bobby Wood Jr. is just a franchise player,
1: yeah, franchise Claire. foundation Claire.
0: cornerstone type player yeah. And he's he's great. The way that he revamped his defense and just worked on his defensive technique and it paid off where he yeah. went from one of the worst shortstops, like, is he still a shortstop? Is he right. playable? Is he going to move right. over to being not just competent, not just playable, but very good there? And that changes everything because you have a good glove at shortstop who's also an above average bat and is as young as he is. (laughs) I mean, that's totally someone you want to build around. He's still 23 years old coming off of the fantastic season that he just had. So sky's the limit with him.
1: Look. Is there a a motivation beyond simply the Bobby Wood Jr. of it all to this extension? Yeah, like I think it would be naive to say otherwise, but there are a lot of teams that ask for public money for their ballparks, and they don't give $300 million contracts out. So. I think that you can understand this within the context of sort of the the image that the royals want to project to a community that they're asking for something from, while still thinking that that image is a good one, even if I wish they wouldn't ask for things, you know. There's an important distinction to be drawn there. The A's are trying to get some money for a ballpark It's Mm -hmm. going over great. I don't know if you've seen that news. Um, (laughs) They're not giving out a $300 million contract to anybody. So it's okay to be excited about this, even as you understand the context that it's existing in, because it's not a given that that's the approach that a team is going to take. And I think showing commitment to being good is admirable, even if this team still has a lot of other holes on the roster and Mm -hmm. doesn't always know how to be Good in terms of the baseball. Like, we've had some questions about some of their choices, but this is, I think, an unequivocal one. And and I think you can, you know, it's not like it's a cheap contract, but having cost certainty around your best player is useful when you're trying to think about roster construction going forward. Like, they know exactly what Bobby Wood Jr. is going to cost them, and so they can go figure out how to build something around him. You know, Mm -hmm. they have work to do, but... You know, one of the really good things about these kinds of deals is that when you have a player as young as Witt is and set to be under contract for as long, you you have a lot of sort of bites at the apple in terms of him still being good and the team around him being a lot better. So I don't want to oversell it like tomorrow the Royals are going to be like leading our playoff odds in the Central, but... Keeping good players in house for a long time is one way to sort of solidify your future. So,
0: yeah, you mentioned the four opt outs. So he can opt out after the 2030, 2031, 2032, and 2033 seasons. I expect that he will opt out after one of those. You almost hope that he does, right, if you're a Royals fan. I mean, you don't want him to leave, but you want him to play so well that that then becomes a, a decision that he wants to make. And he has tons of freedom about whether he wants to make it and when he wants to make it.
1: And, you know, as we have seen with other players, an opt-out is an opportunity to hit the open market. It's also can be the start of an additional negotiation, right? Yep. And so mm-hmm. I'm just feeling really positive about Bobby Wood Jr. and the Royals. It feels weird. Yeah. Man. I guess what I'm trying to say to Royals fans is like, you know, just because... The, as you mentioned, sort of the needle you have to thread for him to like not opt out, but for them to pick up the option is like kind of weird and that scenario isn't particularly likely. You know, one way to think about it is just hey, Bobby Wood Jr. seems to like playing in Kansas City. He wants to be the face of that franchise. And, you know, maybe he will test the market, but maybe what he'll say is, hey, I'm playing really well. We have this opt-out coming in six months. Let's do a deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you can't figure it out the first time, well, guess what? You get three more chances after that. How nice.
0: Yep. I think he's guaranteed at least... 140 million for those opt-out years. And I guess even if he opted out at the first opportunity, this would be like a seven-year, $148 million contract. Yeah. You can do the math in a number of ways. But however you do it, it's both a lot, certainly by Royal standards or yeah. really by any team standards, and also seemingly a pretty good deal for the team. Yeah. <laughs> and Samborski ran the numbers and ran the long-term Zips projections, and it totally checks out. They could have offered him more. That's how good and how young he is. So hopefully it works out for both sides and for Royals fans who really could use someone like yeah. Bobby Witt to stay around because, yeah, they've done a lot this offseason. They've made a lot of moves. They've been yes. aggressive. Volume. They're still not a very good team. No. <laughs> right? And granted, it's not a division where you need to be a great, great team to contend, yep. but it's still hard for me to see as currently constituted, and they've had a lot of young players and young hitters specifically debut over the past couple of years, but some of them sort of stagnated or got hurt in 2023. They don't really have anyone else who projects to be a star right now. Yeah. You could sort of squint and hope that it turns out that way for some guys, but Bobby Witts, I mean, you know, any team, he'd probably be on an island in terms of just how good and young and great his career projects to be. But he's really kind of on an island with the Royals, which makes it more imperative to sign him, which they did. And then also means that if they actually want to win with Bobby Witt, then they're going to have to do more. They're going to have to develop some other complementary players to go with Bobby Witt. But good for them for doing that because there are plenty of teams that do not lock up the franchise cornerstone. So it's, it's really nice to see.
1: They allow the franchise cornerstone to languish, then they allow the franchise cornerstone to leave, and then you have a tippy building, you know, you need the cornerstone. It's like tables, it's like tables in a bar, you know, he's the coaster you slide underneath there to keep the whole thing level.
0: Yep. Some of these contract structures, Bauman wrote about this the other day because the Padres signed Wandy Peralta to a weird one. Yeah,
1: weird contract.
0: I was confused because Wandy Peralta and Willy Peralta signed like almost simultaneously yeah. with, with different teams. But Wandy Peralta, the, the more notable Peralta and the more lucrative contract here, he signed with the Padres and it was a four-year deal with three opt-outs. So just an opt-out after every year of this deal, which I guess is sort of similar to the Nick Martinez contract that the Padres had signed previously. So preller, gonna preller. But I always just wonder with these things, like how do you arrive at that exact term? And what's the back and forth like? And how do you decide that it's a four-year contract with three opt-outs as opposed to like a one year contract with three player options. I mean right. you know, what are the different implications long term? I just I'd love a, a TikTok of like these weird contracts and not even just the Julio contract or this Wit contract, but the lesser known, the lower profile weird ones too. Because yeah. in a way those are even more notable. I, I get yes. that you're gonna run through all sorts of scenarios when you're talking about a franchise altering kind of contract, but when it's Wandy Peralta and you still right. do something. Then out of the norm then that's that's really getting creative
1: I made a choice Ben I made a choice to like leave the world of finance behind and I felt <laughs> so good about that choice and then yep. you know like Al Pacino in A Lesser Godfather I get dragged back in mm-hmm <laughs> But here we are, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, weird contract structures are fun until you have to either write about them or make sure that the person writing about them has written about them correctly, and then Mm -hmm. you just have to do a lot of, you know, John Becker DMing is what it really comes down to a lot of the time, but, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Another contract that was signed that, as we speak, we do not even have the terms for, but is uh, still very much worth discussing, Clayton Kershaw is (sighs) a Dodger, and hopefully a forever Dodger, (laughs) right? So. Yeah, we were we were worried, you know? I you? was so
1: stressed, Ben. Yeah,
0: not worried about the Dodgers uh, being a no, contending team. No, definitely not.
1: They're fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or even about Clayton Kershaw's financial security. <laughs> but in terms of uh, things that we were worried about that were not really that worrisome, I, we just both wanted Clayton Kershaw to be a Dodger. We just wanted him to get to be a teammate of Otani and Yamamoto and Glasnow and everyone else, right? So... This is nice, and obviously he's going to be out probably most of the year, it sounds like, so I don't know whether this will be a two-year sort of structure. We'll see, but I'm just happy that they're not cutting ties with each other. That's They belong with each other.
1: I am sometimes, as a human person, not very nice about other people's parasocial relationships. <laughs> You know, it's a flaw. It's a character flaw. I like to think of myself as an empathetic person, but sometimes I get to, uh, you know, I see some of the behavior and I'm like, could you just like be normal though? Why are you being so weird? And I feel emotionally hoisted on my own petard, Ben, because the degree of pure happiness that I experienced when seeing this news come across the transom, it was high, you know, and I don't know Clayton Kershaw, we're not friends. Like, we don't exchange Christmas cards. But I, as I expressed on this pod, felt like a deep anxiety on his behalf that he would not return to the Dodgers. Here they are embarking on this new, like, era of of Dodgers baseball. They're going to be so good. They have so many exciting players. They're the talk of the offseason. And and he was just going to be at home in Texas you know, with his beautiful family in a presumably a lovely house, but not a Dodger, Ben, not a Dodger. Mm-hmm. And I felt I felt uneasy about it. I felt unsettled. and now I don't. Now I feel I, I feel better about things. so I should be less sassy towards strangers, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, I, maybe some of you guys are very
0: weird. Don't commit to being less sassy, but, but no, maybe, I, maybe I, you'll try.
1: Yeah, I'll try, maybe. But, like, if the Taylor Swift stuff continues, I'm going to have to say something more specific about it because some of you have been real weird. Mm, you should stop that because some settling in a different way than Clayton Kershaw sitting at home in what I imagine is a beautiful house with his lovely family, but, again, not a Dodger, but now a Dodger.
0: I wrote about Taylor Swift this week, but you're I not know. talking about me, I'm sure. No, I'm not
1: talking about you. No, okay. you're not the problem. And Thank you. It's not me either. See, I know the words to some of the songs. This isn't like... I just, anyway, maybe that can be a Patreon (laughs) pod.
0: We better move on. Okay. Yeah, I can
1: wax philosophical. We're going to get emails about it. Don't email
0: us. It's fine. That's weird, too. And we talked about this when the Dodgers signed the concept of James Paxton, just that (laughs) they just have so so many pitchers where you can't really count on them
1: to Uh be healthy when the playoffs
0: roll around. So just just keep adding more of them. Just, you got Glassner, you got. (laughs) You've got Bueller coming off of his injury. You've got Paxton in theory. You've got Kershaw hopefully coming back in August-ish from his shoulder surgery. Not all of those guys are going to be healthy and effective by the time we get to that point in the year. But if you accumulate enough of them (laughs) and they're all generally either – hurt or good guys, where if they're healthy, you you might, in theory, want them starting a postseason game. Hopefully that works out for the Dodgers, where you have some aces, and yeah. then you have some guys who just, you know, throw them all in the stew, and hopefully someone is healthy when you need them to be, right? They're just building in layers of redundancy here.
1: I think if you cook them in a stew, it will undermine their health, but stew yeah. might help their health. So it's very maybe. complicated, you yeah. know?
0: Stew is very fortifying. This is not nearly as notable, but they brought back Ryan Brazier, which I, I mention only because I feel like we maybe have not talked enough about. Ryan Brazier when we talk about this genre of uh, pitchers often who sign with some team that's supposed to be good at player development and then Mm. totally turn their season around because we talked a ton about Jake Diekman, but I don't know that we talked that much about Ryan Brazier going from the Red Sox to the Dodgers and the turnaround was even more stark on a surface level than Diekman going from the White Sox to the Rays because Brazier had a 7.29 ERA with the Red Sox and then a point seven. ERA with the Dodgers, which that's like a stat blast in the making there yeah. for a, a pitcher who had at least 20 innings with each team to have that kind of improvement. Obviously, under the hood, FIP-wise, it was not so dramatic, but it was still pretty dramatic. Yeah. And he was still better than he'd really been up to at that point. And he's been a good pitcher before he was like the last link to the 2018 championship team. So the Dodgers were like, hey, why not add this cutter? And then he added that cutter and then was just totally untouchable the rest of the way. And yeah, he had a very low BABIP and everything, I know. But sure. <laughs> still, he was really good even peripherally. Yeah. So that was another impressive example of, well, the Dodgers, they just fix people. And that's why players often want to sign with them.
1: I mean, we talk about a lot of different guys, but of course we didn't talk about Ryan Brazier. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. no offense, Ryan Brazier, but like, Mm -hmm. we we can't talk about everything. We have to have room for you to be horny about Otani. You know, something has to give, Ben.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does take up a lot of time. Yeah. (laughs) And then the only other notable addition, there have been some other trades and signings and transactions. But the one that rises to the level of maybe briefly bantering about it, another reunion, this one involving Theo Epstein. So speaking yeah. of uh, past Red Sox glory and championships, yeah. so the architect of some of that, coming back to the fold, sort of, we have been maybe wondering, speculating about what Theo's next act would be. I think that's even been an email question that we've answered, should he go and take over the Rockies and show that you can win at altitude? Should he go to Cleveland and end their long drought now after he did that in Boston and Chicago? And it's always sort of felt to me like you can't top what he did with the Red Sox and the Cubs. And for me, at least, like just getting another GM or pobo job after all of that It would almost just be been there, done that, you know, how do I top this? And he seems to have reached the same kind of conclusion because he hasn't, from all appearances, actively pursued another top baseball operations job with a team. He was a consultant to MLB for the past couple of years. Fixed baseball, you know, crossed that um, off his list. <laughs> Dustin. Just, uh, yeah, attempted to, made some major rules changes and, and was one of the people who was involved in that and the pitch clock and everything else. And now he is going to the Fenway Sports Group as a senior advisor. So he will probably have some input into Red Sox decisions. He's not in charge of baseball operations or anything, but he will be a senior advisor. He will perhaps offer advice. And obviously FSG also runs Liverpool, runs the Penguins. And there has been some speculation that maybe ownership is the next move for him. And this is sort of an ownership adjacent pivot for yeah. Epstein. So I don't know whether he will parlay this into something else or what. I'm sure this is quite a lucrative position that enables him to have his fingers in a whole lot of pies in a whole lot of sports. And we'll see what comes from that.
1: It's a weird expression, fingers in a lot of pies. It is.
0: I thought that as I was saying it.
1: Because then you just have sticky fingers. But tasty. Well, I mean, I guess, uh, assuming the pie is good. Few things mm-hmm. I just like more than feeling sticky, you know. It's not a good. Yeah. I don't like no. the sticky thing. That's like it's, it's, not. it's Unsettling. I don't really have any specific thoughts about the I going back. I
0: don't don't know if it'll affect the Red Sox really. Uh, Maybe his advice will be, hey, John, remember how much you used to spend on your baseball team? (laughs) Maybe you should do that again. It seemed to work out pretty well.
1: And look, if that is the sum total of his advice, it will be very useful advice. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to knock that He's not going to have no influence because otherwise, what's the point of this job? But, you know, if he were being hired into the front office, like run the front office or be a a significant voice there, you'd think that they would just do that. So I will be very curious to see what the the actual sort of portfolio looks like for him Mm -hmm. to borrow a finance term in terms (laughs) of what he's really responsible for because – You know, they famously have made some significant changes in that group just recently, and it did not involve bringing Theo in to be the pobo, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see going forward.
0: And he had been involved even as he was consulting for MLB. He was part of a private equity firm, Arctos Sports Partners. So, he's kind of already been involved in overseeing some sports business stuff Mm. and trying to be involved on an ownership level. The biz. He's only 50 years old, you know, which it's like, where do you go from breaking the Red Sox curse and the Cubs curse and getting those jobs as young as he did and taking care of business? It's like, you know, people have speculated, oh, could he be commissioner someday? maybe, I don't know whether he would want to do that and essentially work for the owners or or not, or whether he wants to be an owner or whether his ambitions go beyond baseball, which yeah. this move might suggest. But yeah. yeah, it's, you know, when you accomplish something that would kind of be career capping for most executives pretty early in your career right. or at least your life, it's like, where do you go from there? How do you top that? So he's trying to figure that out.
1: I feel like I am inclined to be a hard worker ben Mm -hmm. and i take satisfaction from my work and like being you know a person who has something to say about the game i think i would find it gratifying to be in a role where i was like helping to direct the strategic vision of the sport but every time one of these guys who i imagine is set up financially well enough i'm like i have so many books i want to read you know like and working in private equity is hard so if i were him i'd Probably quit and <laughs> go read some books. <laughs> but um, that's just me, you know, me, Meg, who's looking mm-hmm. at her bookshelf going, you keep buying them, you know, and you can mm-hmm. only read so many of them at once and you got all this other stuff to do. So mm-hmm. what do you, what do you, what's the plan here, you know? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't. <sighs>
0: then the last transaction, the last signing that I wanted to mention, not nearly as noteworthy as the previous ones, and yet I consider it noteworthy. I'm noting it now. The Rangers signed DJ Peters to a minor league contract. Now, why do I mention that? It's because, rule of three, I can call it a trend now when three things of the same sort Mm -hmm. happen. We talked, or at least uh, I talked on an episode that uh, you were absent for about Charlie Culberson's conversion to pitching, and then we talked about Alex Blandino converting Mm -hmm. to pitching as a knuckleballer now. Mm -hmm. And DJ Peters, who some people... May recall. There's probably a better chance that you don't, but he was in the big leagues with the Dodgers and the Rangers in 2021, and he was a position player and an outfielder. Yep. And yep. now he is yep. becoming a, a pitcher. He started actually doing this last year with the Tigers' Florida Complex League team. So, like Culberson, this has maybe been in the works for a while. But I don't know whether this is an unusual number of sort of fringy position players converting to pitcher at the same time and and becoming news to the extent that it is news at the same time. Maybe this is always happening. It's not a new phenomenon obviously. I just I've noted these three recently and I don't know whether that is a lot or a little to be happening all at once but I support it. I love two-way players and maybe the next best thing is the conversion where you do one way and then you do the other way. It's not nearly as fun as doing both at the same time, but I still support it. And I I wish DJ Peters and the other two well.
1: And it's like, to my mind, meaningfully more fun than guys who do this earlier in their careers because the typical, you know, sort of, eh, uh, it's not, put him on the mound, see what he can do. Like that happens typically when guys are still prospects. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of those guys end up being like really good pitchers, but I like it if only because, and I don't know that this is remotely the motivation here, but, you know, like, we're all kind of, I think, sick of position player pitchers. Like, we're, Mm -hmm. we're our patience has been taxed to the point of breaking. So, the guys who are like, well, fine, I just will be a pitcher only, and I'm going to figure it out. Like, that's a... Rather than being annoying, rather than extending games that should just be done, rather than, you know, being sort of old hat, it is, it is like brave um, mm-hmm. and decisive and not boring. So I'm with you. I think it is notable. And the odds that I mess up and think that Dansby Swanson is Charlie Culberson much lower now you know (laughs) so that's useful to me personally and I'm excited about that but I need Mm -hmm. I need it to work out with Charlie and then I need him to pitch to Dansby I need it'll bring it full circle you know it'll heal the singularity (laughs) that has tortured me for the last couple of years.
0: Culberson's 34, Blandino's 31, and Peters is the young man of only 28. And ah. apparently he throws 95 and well, you has go. a nice slider. So this is man, a legitimate thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good for them.
0: All right. It is preview time.
1: Preview. And
0: if you are interested in teams that Joey Wendell played for last year or will be playing <laughs> for this year. Very
1: good. Have yeah. we ever
0: got a pod for you? Or, you know, East. I don't know exactly sure. how to sell it. But it's time to talk about the Marlins. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about them with Kevin Brawl. And then after an additional break, we will talk to Tim Britton about the New York Mets. well to kick off our 2024 team preview series we are joined by Kevin Baral, who is a beat writer and reporter covers the Marlins for fish on first he is coming to us from Lone Depot Park hello Kevin
2: hey Ben hey mag how are you guys doing really appreciate you guys having me on it's it's an honor
0: Yeah, thanks for being our leadoff guest here. Just got to work your way on base here, see some pitches. (laughs) So people might wonder why you're coming to us from Lone Depot Park in the first week of February. Is Kevin just an eager beaver, just can't wait to uh, show up for opening day several weeks early? No, there is baseball being played at Lone Depot Park, currently exciting baseball. In fact, however the season goes for the Marlins this year, we can say that there will have been meaningful baseball played at Lone Depot Park because it is currently hosting the Caribbean Series, and you've been covering it. So before we get to the Marlins, can you let people know, first of all, if they're not aware of what the Caribbean Series is, what it is, who is playing, what the stakes are, and also why this is being hosted in Lone Depot Park? Because I think it's the first time in decades that it has been somewhere else outside of Latin America.
2: Yeah. So the Caribbean series is seven teams. So it is Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Curaçao, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Panama. Mm-hmm. Each winner of those prospective winter leagues, besides Curaçao and Nicaragua, which both are really, they don't have the proper winter league. So they choose players from that country to go play. They compete here in Lone Depot Park for the first time ever. This tournament itself is being played in a major league stadium. So Marlins got the honor of some cool names. Yassel Puig is playing for Venezuela. He was with the uh, Diorones de la Huida with Ozzy Guillen. So he's also here making his first return to Miami since, you know, being the Marlins manager in 2012. Yeah, it's been a great tournament. Panama right now at 4-0. I don't think anyone should have seen that one coming. A lot of good Major League talent on that team. Yadi Molina, Yadier Molina also here with as the manager for Puerto Rico. Yeah, this is a huge tournament. The winner obviously gets to, you know, say that they're the best Winter League team in 2024. So, very cool tournament here going on at Lone Depot Park. And, you know, very honored to be covering it.
0: What's the attendance and the atmosphere like?
2: Really depends what teams. There are games where there are less than 100 fans here. Uh, we mm. saw it with Nicaragua, Panama, I want to say. Then there are games like the one we saw not too long ago. It was Venezuela, Puerto Rico, which was 35,000 fans here at Lone Depot Park, which is the most ever attended Caribbean Series game ever.
1: Those are the fans that are there for the Caribbean series. I'm sure Marlins fans are looking forward to the time that they might spend in Lone Depot Park. And we'll go through a bunch of specifics of the roster, but I think the the place to start is sort of what you've observed of this club in the offseason, obviously undergoing some pretty significant changes um, in the last couple of months with the departure of Kimming. So what is sort of the, the state of the front office um, now that it's under uh, new leadership?
2: The big news, obviously, this offseason was the departure of Kimmel. The Marlins did accept their side of the option to bring her back for another year, but she did not following the playoff appearance for the Marlins. And they brought in Peter Bendix, former Rays general manager. This is something that you could really make the case. Bruce has wanted for a very, very long time. He wants to be like the Rays. He wants to run this team like the Rays. And uh, in this first offseason under Bendix, we're certainly seeing that. It's been a lot of front office management coming in. We see Gabe Kapler... Rachel Balkovic, Compton as well from the Texas Rangers. I mean, we're seeing a lot of additions from this to this front office. And then player-wise, we're seeing minor league deals here and there. You know, some of them maybe pay off, some of them don't. Um, as of the recording of this podcast, the Marlins are the only major league team yet to sign a player to a full major league deal. They've made trades, obviously. They brought in uh, Vidal Brujan and Calvin Fauche from the Tampa Bay Rays, that was his first trade, funny enough, you know, with his former team. So yeah, it's been a very quiet offseason. But when you look at the losses of this team, aside from Jorge Soler, which you're losing 36 home runs, you haven't lost too much. It's fairly really the same roster. Josh Bell opted into his player option to return for one more season with this team. So it's really a lot of the same guys. Jake Berger still here. Obviously, he still has a couple years left of control. And then, I mean, we're probably going to talk about it soon, but Sandy Alcantara, you're losing him for for a full season. So two big losses for this team. But for the most part, this is still the same team that we saw make the 2023 postseason.
1: I'm curious, though, you know, the front office additions that you named, I think would be exciting for any club. Um, They're certainly well regarded within the game. But, you know, what was your sense of sort of the internal reaction to Kim's departure? Because this club made... The postseason. It made the postseason in a full season, right? It, they obviously had their 2020 appearance, but that you know reads a little differently given the the state of that season. I think that there were moves that she made that were generally well regarded within the industry. I think there were instances where I think folks felt she may be overpaid a little bit in trade, but given what they were able to accomplish, did her departure strike people as surprising? Was there disappointment internally?
0: and also i guess to to piggyback on that the the manner of the departure right? right Just the bringing in someone else over her head or at least that was reported to maybe be the incident that uh, caused her to move on
2: there was a lot of shock when this organization when they found out that Kimeng would not be returning and yeah uh, that report was pretty fair it was pretty accurate bruce sherman wanted to bring someone in over Kimeng, and they wanted a president of baseball operations it seems like that is something Bruce has wanted for a very, very long time. Bruce Under, the the owner of the Miami Marlins, has wanted that for a very long time. And I think that at this point, when you look at what was up for Kim, she was going to have full control of the twenty six man roster. That was going to be hers. She was going to make the deals. She was going to make everything. But she was going to have a boss, and that guy, that boss, the president of baseball ops, was going to control, oversee really the player development side of things. He was going to really oversee this farm system, which it's not what it used to be, guys. I mean you look at this farm system now, a lot of losses in there. A lot of guys who just didn't pan out. Um, this is one of the worst farm systems in baseball. We're seeing a lot of rebuilding on it now and a lot of retooling, if you want to say that word. That's really been the word of the offseason for the Marlins. But yeah, a lot of shock within this organization. I mean, Skip Schumacher, I don't think he expected that. He was hired by Kim Ng. A lot of players were very shocked that she did not make a return. So, you know, when you when you really look back, you could have told yourself that, You know, maybe Kim wanted that promotion, and that's probably what she was expecting. You know, one year left on her deal, they had to, they something had to happen at this point, and uh, it wasn't that she did not get the promotion. The Marlins wanted to bring her back, and they wanted to bring in someone over her to be essentially, I mean, quote unquote, your boss, and that is not what she wanted. After especially making the playoffs and a full length major league season for the first time since two thousand and three.
0: So earlier today, it was reported by John Morosi that the Marlins have expressed interest in Gio Urshela. I know, super exciting, but at least they've (laughs) expressed interest in someone, right? Because they have not signed a player to a major league contract all offseason. Now, that would be one thing if you just said, well, they're a playoff team, they're bringing back that entire playoff team, almost, with a couple departures. But of course, it was not like they comfortably sailed into the playoffs. And of course, they were an 84-win team. Well, we saw another 84-win National League team win a pennant, but they were outscored on the season. So that's not necessarily something where you can be confident in, okay, we can just run it back and we'll be back in October. So. What's your sense of how confident the Marlins are that they could repeat that performance, that that would be enough to repeat that performance?
2: They're confident enough that they haven't made a major league signing yet. I mean, that's the (laughs) way I see it right now. You look back at that Marlins team, and they had the most one-run wins in baseball. Right. They had the worst run differential out of any playoff, the worst run differential team to ever make the playoffs. So, yeah, you look at it, and you're like, you know, maybe they should add some bats. And that hasn't been the case whatsoever. Uh, they're banking a lot on these on the pitching to once again carry them to the playoffs. Jake Berger, Josh Bell, both on this team, really is a big help. You're getting about 20 to 25 home runs for, from each. But again, Berger, this was his first true big breakout season so you don't know what you're going to get from someone like jake berger and on top of that with berger he really was a different player when coming on to this team this miami team about a 20 strikeout rate not too high for what he was doing in chicago he was really more of a contact guy really balancing out the power with the contact you don't know what you're going to get out of jake berger now if that's where you're getting once again that's huge but at the same time you have to tell yourself what am i going to get out of someone like him Then, obviously mentioned that jay rochelle signing that's going to be if that does end up happening that is really just a guy who you're going to have move around the infield, help you out at first base. You didn't bring back Yuli Gurriel. Now you have Trey Mancini there, so that's going to be something to look out during the spring. But yeah, this team is pretty confident. Peter Bendix said he doesn't want to rebuild. There's not going to be a rebuild with this with this, with this this Marlins team, but there's still a lot of flaws to it. You still would love to bring back a Jorge Soler. I mean, that you're losing 36 home runs and arguably one of the most clutch players in baseball, just statistically, that guy won so many games for this Marlins team. You look at the Washington Nationals game early on in the year, when this team looked like it was finally starting to slip, but he was able to walk it off there. So it's, it's really interesting to see why they aren't making these moves. Now, again, you have to tell yourself, this is exactly the same team that did it once. Why wouldn't they be able to do it again? I mean, that's really, I guess, what Bendix and the rest of the front office is, is, is kind of telling themselves.
0: Right. I guess the one-run record that you mentioned would be one One reason. reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but, I guess so. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: Let's stick with hitters for a second. I think, you know, to me, maybe one of the more interesting stories for them this year is not going to be any of the, the new guys that came in later, you know, anyone who they might sign in the next couple of months, but sort of what we end up seeing from Jazz Chisholm Jr. So I, I want to ask first what the state of his health is and their expectations for for him coming into camp. And then, you know, sort of what your impressions are of of his center field defense and how the club feels like that transition has gone for him or what their expectations are for him going forward. Because once you're a, you know, MLB The Show cover athlete, I think people's (laughs) expectations are elevated. And, you know, he was dealing with a new position. He was dealing with injury, but he went from being, you know, a 136 WRC plus hitter to a 103 WRC plus hitter. So what is the the current state and future of Jazz Chisholm?
2: The team's really high on him, that's for sure. Uh, I think there was a Miami Herald report not too long ago about that, that this team really likes Jazz and center. They think he, he has a lot of upside. And honestly, with about 120 games played for Chisholm, if you know that's the season that you end up getting from 120, 130, you got to feel really good what you're getting there. And you know, you look last season, I know his season was cut short multiple times, but within 80, he ranked in the 87th percentile of outs above average. He has a good arm. He's quick. He's fast. He did what the Marlins wanted in center field, and it was hold it down for that when he was healthy. And yeah, you look at the offense. I mean, his strikeout percentage went up. He wasn't putting the he put the ball in play a little bit more, but didn't hit for too much average. Didn't get on base. I mean, and that happens when you only play ninety seven games on the season too. He, he wasn't fully ready to go. He struggled late into the season a couple of times. I know he had his struggles early on as well. But this organization likes Jazz. They think he's a really good player. They think that. Him at center field is big for them. He wanted to play center field, and he's been doing it. And a healthy Jazz Chisholm Jr. is going to be huge for this Marlins team. They were able to do what they did with only 97 games played of Jazz Chisholm. Now, you got to ask yourself, what will he do with more? More games played. You know, He's good to go for the spring. He recovered from his, uh, I believe it was a, a foot injury that he had early, early on in the season that kept him out for a while. And that kind of came back to haunt him and uh, now you have to go through surgery there he decided not to go through it during the season to to be able to play and uh yeah he's ready to go for spring training and um it's gonna be really fun to see what he could do when hopefully almost a full season of play
0: The marlins were one of the worst defensive teams last year according to various metrics which maybe tells you how good their pitching was that they managed to transcend that anyway but Is there an area where you think they could be better on the field this year? I know that's something Peter Bendix prioritizes coming from the Rays. So could they be a better defensive team? If so, where might that improvement come from?
2: Yeah, I mean, you have to look at shortstop. Uh, Joey Wendell is a great shortstop for the Marlins defensively. Uh, He was one of the better defensive shortstops on this team. And you can make the case in the National League as well. You're losing that. And now right now you're going with. At the moment, John Birdie as your opening day shortstop, no knock on John Birdie, but I just don't see him holding it down for a full-length season. You also have Jacob Amaya in the minor leagues, who is a defensive first guy, but you know, you kind of need to bank on the bat a little bit there if you want to bring him up for for a length of time. Xavier Edwards also there for the Marlins, who really just isn't a true shortstop. He started there there in his uh, pro career, but he's moved around, and it seems like although they're going to give him every possible shot to play shortstop. According to Peter Bendix, you're going to look at what Skip Schumacher said during the winter meetings that they're going to let him play center field as well. So you have two different people saying two different things, but at the end of the day, you're probably going to get, see some sort of combination there. Uh, the other position I'm looking at is left field. Brian De La Cruz is not good defensive outfielder he spoke during media day he he admitted that and he said that that is something that he has been trying to work on so I'm very interested to see how he comes back or if the Marlins do bring in someone on I mean, if some sort of one of these minor league deals end up working out and they crack the the 26 man roster or at some point they come up i mean they brought back Jonathan Davis who was pretty good in the outfield during Jazz time out so maybe they slot him at a corner spot if needed but those are the two spots i'm looking at they brought in Christian Bethencourt for the catching's position he you know, one thing that the Marlins have really struggled with is uh the limiting base runners, not a lot, you know, they, I mean, you look at the Jacob Stallings, Nick Fortes tandem last year, they weren't able to throw out a runner. Uh, you you look back, they just weren't able to throw out many guys. So you bring in someone like Christian Bethencourt, who is one of the best at doing that. And that really does help out a lot in that end. And uh, really, that's it, because you have Jazz at center. Uh, Luis Reyes was he had a positive DRS this past season. He was pretty good defensively for the most part. So you're kind of glad what you have there, and then third base, Jake Berger. I mean, he held it down. That's going to be another spot I'm actually really interested to look at to see what they do there during the spring because we've heard, you know, that Jake Berger could also play first if necessary. He's going to be DHing, so it's going to be interesting what they do at third base. Uh, that's the other spot I'm looking at there. But right now, my two biggest concerns are shortstop and left field.
1: You mentioned that the the farm system isn't particularly good. And, you know, as we think through position players who might be able to bolster that offense at the big league level, I am curious what your thoughts are on Jacob Berry, who was a first-rounder for the Marlins in 2022, didn't really play much of a position in college, but really raked, and has has thus far struggled as a hitter at the minor league level. So what is your sense of what's going on with Barry, and is there sort of a path for him to, to big league playing time here?
2: From the get-go, I was a little iffy about this Barry pick, because now you look at you know that draft, and someone that they passed up on, which was Brooks Lee, is now you know, plays you shortstop, he played the infield very well, and he's now a triple A. most likely at some point gonna be a big leaguer for the Twins unless they trade him to another team to acquire either bats or pitching. And, you know, with Barry, right now the issue is the defensive side of things. He is not a third baseman. He struggled there. I would like to see the Marlins specifically just put him at first. I think, as you said, Meg, I mean that would be the quickest way for him to reach the major league level. It is, I would say it's going to play first base. They don't have a clear answer at first base moving forward it's either go with a 31 year old trey mancini to bring him back after this season or you have to go with someone like troy johnson who's 27 or you could go with someone like a jacob barry who honestly i think the bat would develop a lot better if he's focused on that one position at first which would make a lot of sense and he would he could be a major leaguer by the by the end of this season or 2025 if you look at You know, if if you keep him at first, because he did have a pretty productive Arizona Fall League and he was pretty good at the double A level when he got up there. So I feel like another year of development at first base would be huge for someone like Jacob Berry.
1: Are there other position players down on the farm who you're excited about, either for what they might contribute this season or going forward?
2: Troy Johnston, first baseman. He was really good for, I guess you can look at double A and triple A. He had the first 2020 minor leagues, Marlins minor league season since 2008. Right now, the only concern is just on the defensive side of things, uh, first base. You know, he's someone who I'm very surprised Marlins didn't protect in the Rule 5, although he didn't end up going. He already has his invitation to spring. So, uh, you know, for, for him, it would really just be performed this spring. That's really all I'm looking at. Xavier Edwards, if you guys, if he's still considered a prospect at this point. He's one who I'm looking at. Jacob, Jacob Maya. Uh, Victor Mesa Jr. I'm very, very excited about. He is arguably the Marlins' best position player prospect, and that's not really saying much just looking at this farm system, but he showed a lot of strides. He could play center field, really all three outfield spots. So he'll probably start at AAA if I had to guess, and he should definitely be someone that you know marlins fans are looking at as we move on but yeah really that's about it that are really close to major league ready if you really good look down have your Sanoha, someone who i'm very high on really a slap hitter guy quick player so that's the only other one i'm looking at but he's still very young he got the invite actually to uh major league spring training but that's i, I have to guess that's more of an experience thing for for the marlins
0: So pitching has been the strength for the Marlins, and it still is. They are 10th in projected war from their starting pitchers, which is pretty good considering that they're without Alcantara, that they traded Pablo Lopez, that there have been some injuries, or Trevor Rogers having the rough season that he had, etc. There's still a lot to like in this rotation. So why don't we just go top to bottom, because there are some pretty exciting names here, and maybe some question marks or pitchers trying to return from injury toward the bottom. So why don't you just... uh, sum up the state of this rotation for us and maybe we'll have follow-ups about individual guys.
2: I mean, the big name is Jesus Luzardo. Not only have we heard his name and trade rumors in the offseason, but he had one great season for the Marlins this past year. I mean, I think he, he surpassed the 200-inning marker. He also had about 200 strikeouts, I want to say, as well. So, I mean, you look at what he provided for this Marlins team last season. It was a lot of length as well. He pitched a career-high in innings, actually 178. So he had the 200 strikeouts, not the 200 innings. I'm sorry on that end. And then you keep going. You look at Yuri Perez, who made his major league debut this year. He pitched his first time at the big league level, the most innings he's ever pitched. If you combine the minors and the majors, and the expectation is that he'll go even more this season, because they really do need that. You're losing about 200 plus innings of Sandy Alcantara, so... Uh, then going down, you have Braxton Garrett, who also pitched a career high in innings. He was very impressive this year. Don't think anyone saw that coming out of him, especially after beginning the season as a kind of like a swing man, quad A type player. He comes in with you know due to the Johnny Cueto injury really early on in the season, and he starts and he ended up getting game two of the playoffs. So I don't think anyone saw that coming from him. Then you keep going. I mean, Edward Cabrera who that's, that's such a difficult situation there because he walks so many guys. It's always been control and command for someone like Edward. But when things are clicking for him, he could be one of the best pitchers in this rotation. Then you have Trevor Rogers, as you guys mentioned, really disappointing 2022. Came back in 2023, kind of got off to a rough start. But in those last two before the injury, really started feeling like he was turning the corner. It'll be interesting to see where they put him in. That's really the starting five right now. And if you kind of start looking at other names, you know, Max Meyer, who's making his return from Tommy John, he's expected to be a full go in spring training. I'm very excited to see what he provides. So is Skip Schumacher. He, they're excited to see what someone like Max Meyer could provide to that rotation. And then uh, Ryan Weathers, who they acquired in the Garrett Cooper trade, you know, with Garrett Cooper and Sean Reynolds heading to San Diego for um, Ryan Weathers. He's also someone who the marlins expect him to be a swing man he had a very strong start at the end of the season but you can't those are you know those should be taken very lightly in terms of what he could provide there and other guys on the 40 man i mean brian hoeing if you want to mention him he gave made a couple of spot starts for the marlins this past season was pretty productive they brought back devin smeltzer on the minor league deal he'll bring you some spot starts so i mean that's really it they, they have a lot of depth i mean you you look at the loss of sandy it's huge it's it's a big one you're losing about 200 innings there and almost two hundred over two hundred strikeouts, but you look at the current five right now, I mean, this depending what Edward and Trevor Rogers bring up to the table in twenty twenty four, it's not a bad rotation by any means.
1: You mentioned the, you know, sort of prospect of an increase in Yuri Perez's innings. What do you think is a realistic benchmark for him to be aiming toward? Because last year, I don't want to say that the way that his uh, workload was managed was completely about service time considerations because he obviously was making such a significant jump to the big leagues. But that was seemingly a part of how they decided when to deploy him. So what do you think is realistic for him this year?
2: So if I recall correctly, between the majors and the minors, he pitched about 110, 124 innings. So you would have to go off of that, and then you would have to say maybe 140, 150 innings would be the right benchmark for someone like Yuri, especially given the fact that he will start at the major league level with this team. It's not going to be some sort of up and down. We're halfway through the season. They sent him down, and although he was throwing bullpens at Pensacola, he actually stayed up here in Miami after he was sent down. He stayed here for a couple of days. He was working at, um, I believe, some place in Pinecrest here in Miami, uh, and he kept throwing bullpens and bullpens, and he made that one start at A, which was, I think, two innings, and then he came back. So that's really where I see it. I would have to say 140, 150 innings for some like Perez. Now, maybe the Marlins are in contention, and they will let it go even higher than that. So that's the only other way I could see it. But yeah, uh, that, that would be the right amount of angst for someone like Prez. They're really being careful with this guy. It's, they don't want you know, this guy to get injured. They don't want him to have that Sandy Alcantara situation where he's overworked at some point or maybe feels like it, and he has to go through some sort of Tommy John injury, and he would be out for the whole season. This guy's only 20 years old, 21. So it's really they're, – they're being very, very careful with someone like Yuri.
0: Noticed you didn't mention Sixto Sanchez. I don't blame you, <laughs> but it would be nice if we got to see him pitch again someday. I noticed that the Marlins also have the fifth highest projected WAR total from their bullpen, so maybe this is sort of a unsung unit. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean this bullpen. I don't think any. I don't think my personally, I thought this bullpen would be what it turned into. But you look at the combination of a Tanner Scott and an Andrew Marty, who. Nardi now adding the sweeper into his uh, arsenal is going to be very interesting to see how that works out for him. I mean, Tanner Scott may have had the be best reliever season in Marlins history, or even close to that. Then you continue going down. AJ Puck had a very good first started, you know, very good start to the season for the Marlins in 2023. Really began to struggle in and that second half. They even had to remove him from the closer's role. You had David Robertson come in. You know, we ha- we saw that how that whole soccer went down. You know, a name that hasn't been mentioned in a while. Anthony Bender's coming back to the Marlins in 2024. He's someone who they're very high on. Uh, you keep going down. You have Steven Okert, who, you know, got off to a very nice start, but just like Puck, he started struggling in that second half. They called him George Soriano. I, I mean, if there's someone who's high on George Soriano, it's myself. I love that guy. He provides a lot of innings for this team. He had to come in on a lot of situations. If we remember that game in Atlanta where Yuri gave up, he got blown up. That was his first real blow-up start. Uh, they had to bring in George Soriano, and he was really able to guide the Marlins to the end of that game. I don't think he allowed us to run or very related to the game he did. But that's really where I'm seeing And you guys have, you know, Fangrass has six to projected as a bullpen guy. Uh, I'm interested to see what they do there with him. The, the explanation, you know, that we've gotten is just like, we're going to see what happens when he comes into spring training. He made that one start with Pensacola. He didn't make another one after that. He was throwing mid 80s, high 80s. I don't think he ever hit mm-hmm. 90 miles per hour on any of his pitches. And a lot of people thought he was throwing, you know, change-ups or secondary pitches. No, no, no. He was throwing basketballs. I mean, that was a little disappointing to see, but good to see that he actually got onto the Major League mountain And then looking at, you know, at other 40-man guys that the Marlins have, Huascar Brazabon was really good for the Marlins at the start of the season. Anthony Maldonado, who uh, was at AAA, spent the whole year there. He should be someone who definitely cracks that opening day roster. He was just added to the 40-man. I mean, he he was one of the best relievers not only on the in the marlin system but in minor league baseball a 176 era for for someone like maldonado he also had a couple saves in there as well nine saves so he's someone who has experience and high leverage aside from that they brought in calvin fauchet from the tampa bay rays i know he struggled in his time with tampa but that should be someone that they'll look forward to josh simpson another one of those former top prospects or top 30 prospects in the marlins organization he went up to the major league level he really never made his debut so that was unfortunate to see but someone who you know, lefty relievers that which they really do need in there and uh yeah and then they brought in you know caleb Ort off of waivers i don't really know what to say about him it should be someone who is more just uh set, you know some depth that you'll have and if you need him you bring him up but yeah this is a fun bullpen i mean and we'll see if they maybe sign one or two more relievers at this point but, you know, and the other day, the Marlins released their NRIs, and there was a lot of guys in there that are just very exciting. You have Elvis Alvarado, who throws about 100-mile-per-hour sinkers. That was very interesting to see. Lou Albert Arias, who was one of the better prospects for the Marlins. So those are two younger guys I'm looking at, you know, 24, 22 years old around there for those guys. So this is a fun bullpen. If there's one thing that the Marlins have been able to develop correctly, it's not just only starting pitching but they're bullpen. I mean, you were able to trade someone like a Sean Reynolds last year, and no matter what happens with him after that, they were able to develop this guy into a really good reliever to trade him. You were able to bring out someone like a George Soriano. You have Josh Simpson, Anthony Maldonado. They've been able to develop a lot of relievers, and that's definitely been one of the strong suits for this Marlins organization so it's a fun bullpen we'll see what happens with Tanner Scott I know that's been a name that's also been thrown into trade rumors you know given that you see the price of him with the Josh Hader signing the deal that he did I don't think Tanner Scott gets that magnitude of a deal ever but maybe another season maybe he does uh but that's definitely a name that I'm looking at Andrew Nardi another one who again I'm very excited to see what he provides
0: Skip Schumacher, one manager of the year in the National League in his rookie season as manager, that will tend to happen when you manage a team that maybe was not expected to make the playoffs and then just squeaked in. What did you see of him in his first season? What were his strengths and what, if anything, might he still have to work on?
2: Skip is a a great manager. He showed a lot of strides in year one. There were great decisions that he made during games, especially pitching decisions, um, there's one thing that he definitely did was really make sure that he took care of his pitchers. Braxton Garrett, Hazel Suzardo, those are the two names you look at. Both career highs, they really had to manage these guys, especially towards the end of the season. He was able to do that as much as he could. I don't think Hazel Luzardo and Braxton Garrett went to the seventh inning many times this season. Maybe they did, and when they got there... They were taking out after a batter or two, so that's definitely something that you know is worth noting. There, I mean, his lineup lineup construction was pretty good for the most part. No real complaints there, especially at the start of the season when we saw consistency with the lineup. So that's something else. Uh, Defensive substitutions were pretty good, especially towards the end of the year. The way he managed was was just not not conservative, but it was just the smart way to do it, and that's something that stood out. In I mean, at the end of the day, the Marlins. 184 games. and made the playoffs. That's something that no manager had been able to do since 2003 in a full-length season. So he's very deserving a manager year. Very good with the media. Very, very good man person and overall. So um, he, he's been a good fit for this Marlins team. The players love him. That's another thing too. He's brought in a good staff. So yeah, Skip Schumacher has been a very good manager, and he's made good decisions for the Marlins this season. It's really hard to go against any of his decisions this past season.
1: So the team has impressive pitching, it has a good manager, it has a smart front office, it's shown an aptitude for developing pitching. But I'm curious sort of what your sense is of whether there's a path for this team at some point to start spending some money. Because, you know, if they don't want to do a full rebuild, and they have the farm system, they do, and they have the offense, they do. If they want to compete in their division, it seems like at some point... They're going to have to be willing to deploy something in the way of payroll to make that happen. So is there, you know, a a set of dominoes that can fall that would finally (laughs) inspire Bruce Sherman to write some checks?
2: I would have thought it would have been this offseason. They made the playoffs. They made these big trades. They brought in Josh Bell, who at the end of the day ended up accepting that player option because Bruce Sherman personally called him and said that he wants him back. So that's $19 right there towards a player like Josh Bell. Uh, this player hasn't mentioned hasn't been mentioned at all. Avi Garcia is still getting paid on this team. Uh, However, I think it's like about fifteen million dollars, so that's another guy there. So I thought it would have been this offseason to be honest with you, Meg. And it just hasn't been. They brought in the one guy that we know won't be spending that amount of dollars. Although we did see the, the you know the raise at the end of the, that tenure with Bendix spend on Zach Eflin, which ended up being the biggest contract they've ever given out in team history. They, they were interested in someone like a Freddie Freeman, I believe, not too long ago, so when he was a free agent. So it, it's definitely going to be interesting to see if maybe another winning season sparks that for Bruce. You know, there's still a chance that they bring back Corey Solaire, and they make that all right. But at the moment, they don't look like they're going to spend too much.
0: Yeah, I guess, historically speaking, there hasn't been a whole lot of precedent for the Marlins or Marlins owners or Bruce Sherman teams being in the upper tiers of payroll, right? So, the track record is what it is. So, at some point, money has to talk or not, but that is just nothing new, I guess, for the Marlins and and Marlins fans. And sometimes they've made it work regardless, which brings us to our last question here, which is – What should the goal be, or what's the realistic expectation for this Marlins team? What would constitute a success? Stipulating that obviously every team wants to win the World Series, what is sort of a a realistic benchmark that Marlins fans could look back at the end of the season and assess this season's success based on whether they cleared that?
2: I mean, this is a team that, again, lost 36 home runs. They haven't made a single major league move. Man, I mean, this is still not a bad team when you look at it. You still have a pretty good lineup for the most part. You still have Jazz. You still have Luis Rise leading off for you every game, Josh Bell. I mean, this isn't a bad team. I would have to say 75-80 wins. And I know it's a down season compared to what they did last year, but the players that you lost, the lack of movement that you've made, this 2024 season, it does feel like for them, it's not going to be the season that Marlins fans want. They, this, 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 this is this, going to feel like one of those conservative seasons now. If midway through the season, this team is rolling and they're looking like they're going to have a real shot at it. It wouldn't surprise me if Peter Bendix starts making a lot of moves and to upgrade this team. But right now, you would have to look at 80 wins, staying to hunt, kind of like what I know you guys talk, spoke to Jordan last season. He kind of said the same, just staying the hunt, show that this team could be competitive. And that's really where I'm seeing it again for this season. Now, again, they could blow us out of the water. And all of a sudden, this is not, this is the division that where the Mets really aren't looking to compete this season. The Nationals still have another year left. And there, the Marlins have some sort of opening to go out there and make a big move in that NL East, at least finish third like they did last season. So it, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this season goes. But right now, if I had to put some sort of win total on how many games they should win, I'd have to go 75 to 80 wins. I mean, I really can't say much more than that. This team is just not as good as it was last season. And who knows? Maybe their one-run win luck runs away. And the Miami Magic, where they came back against the Yankees down like six, seven runs, goes away. I mean, you you can't bank on those type of wins like you would have done last season. So, and you're losing that clutch factor with someone like Soler. It's really hard for me to say over over 80 wins, but 80 wins would be good. I mean, you haven't seen that in a while, you know, that consistent uh, marker where you're finishing 80, 82 wins. That's really what you want. And I know that's not what Mar- wood marlin's fans would want but you know you have to be realistic here and this is a team that's not going to win you more than 85 86 games it's especially with the lack of movement so you know if they somehow do slip into that third wild card spot that would be huge as well
0: and you can enjoy Luis Arise in the meantime, I guess. And Hopefully, For two he follows more years, up. Yeah. yeah, right. We'll see whether they decide to keep him or not after that, or extend him, which I know he's open to. You can follow the Marlins at Fish on First, where Kevin and the rest of the staff do excellent work covering this team. fishonfirst.com. You can also listen to Fish on First, the Miami Marlins podcast, and you can hear Kevin on the Swimming Upstream episodes covering Marlins prospects. Kevin, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the Caribbean series.
2: Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. It's truly an honor. We follow your work always and uh, we're big fans of it. So thank you again.
0: All right, we'll take one more quick break and we'll be right back with Tim Britton of The Athletic to preview the 2024 New York Mets. All right, we are back and we are joined now by Tim Britton, who is a senior writer at The Athletic covering the New York Mets. And not by coincidence, we are having him on to talk about the New York Mets. Hello, Tim. How are you? Hey, what's up? Well, we were just saying before we started recording, slightly less eventful offseason than the Mets was last year, although it does clear the did they do more than the Marlins bar. But like the Marlins, they did have a change in leadership in the front office. So why don't we start there? Because the Mets have a new Pobo and also a new manager, Carlos Mendoza. So why don't we start with David Stearns? Because he had been connected to the Mets for so long. And sometimes things that we all expect to happen do not come to pass. But that one did. So how did that go down? And how, if at all, do you expect that to change how the Mets operate?
3: Yeah, I mean, it feels in many ways like this is the start of what Steve Cohen wanted his ownership to look like uh, way back when he took over in in the fall of 2020. You know, in the time since we've been reporting at The Athletic that the Mets were interested in David Stearns as as far back as November of 2021 uh, and that they would be inclined to wait him out for as long as it took. And that was an additional two years, you know, they've had under Steve Cohen I think Stearns is their fourth different head baseball decision maker, um, following Jared Porter and Zach Scott and Billy Epler. Uh, so that's four in four years. Uh, so you can imagine the level of instability across the organization that that engenders. You know, you've got different guys running player development with each new person coming in. You've got different strategies filtering down from the major league level all the way through the minor league system. So I think, the hope from Steve Cohen's perspective, from the Mets' perspective, is David Stearns is going to be in this role for a while now uh, and that they can finally start to have kind of a, a, a stability throughout the organization uh, from one year to the next, from, from a few years to over time, get everyone moving in the same direction uh, at the same time in a way they haven't really been able to over the last four years.
1: When the Stearns hiring was finally an- <laughs> announced, um, I think one of the questions that a lot of us had was, you know, he's coming from a small market team in Milwaukee that has been pretty light from a payroll perspective. You know, we've seen that this offseason, right, with them moving on from Corbin Burns because they're not going to be able to extend him. And I think one of the the questions when you have someone coming from a club like that is how much of the um, approach to payroll is that person's sort of innate baseball philosophy and how much is just a constraint of the market that they're in. And because the Mets haven't been particularly active this offseason, I don't know that we've gotten a clearer answer to that question as it relates to Stearns, but what is your sort of sense of him as a Pobo, um, you know, should they end up in a position where he has to make a case to to Cohen to start to add payroll?
3: Yeah, I mean, we've seen it go different ways with people following that same career resume, right? You know, Andrew Friedman has done quite well spending (laughs) ownership money in LA. Heim Bloom struggled with that in Boston, Uh, both guys coming from Tampa. With Stearns, we, we saw them aggressively pursue Yoshinobu Yamamoto this offseason. You know, they offered more than $300 million to Yamamoto, who decided to take a similar offer from L.A. So I, I would expect him to be aggressive in the free agent market in a way that he he never really was in Milwaukee. You know, they made a couple of bigger free agent acquisitions there in, in Yasmani Grandal for one year, and Lorenzo Cain was probably the biggest for five. Right, uh, But... Where the Mets are right now, and I think you know next off when a lot of the money that they kind of uh, that they dealt at the trade deadline for Max Scherzer and Justin Berlin, when that comes off the books, when they have to make a decision on Pete Alonso at first base, uh, when you know there are a couple guys on the free agent market, Burns, like you mentioned, one of them. Uh, I, I'll be really interested in seeing just how aggressively the Mets go after uh, those guys in free agency. One interesting thing is, I, you know, I don't think he's got to make two, you know, it's, it's not a case where he's really got to convince Steve Cohen or control Steve Cohen <laughs> into spending his money. I think Cohen is pretty open to those kinds of uh, ideas at any point. It will be Stearns really determining just how aggressive they are uh, at various junctures.
0: I do want to ask about Mendoza, but since you brought up Yamamoto, the Mets really wanted him. They wined and dined him. Steve Cohen tried to. It just was not enough to defeat the Dodgers. Was that pursuit of Yamamoto in keeping with the rest of their offseason strategy, which sort of seemed like a step back, a bridge year, did that strategy hinge on whether or not they got Yamamoto? Or was that just going to be their one guy regardless? Even if they had landed him, they still would have considered this sort of uh,
3: intermediate Yeah, I don't know that their offseason looks any differently, you know, if they sign Yamamoto from, from the rest of the roster perspective, you know, it maybe would just would have been Yamamoto rather than Sean Manaya, uh, in the rotation. And I know that's a a pretty significant difference, but they looked at Yamamoto as unique in this free agent market as so many teams did because of his age, because he was only going to be 25, uh, next season that, That was going to be a long-term investment for them. That was going to be their big payday for a starting pitcher uh, at the top of their rotation. And if they sign Yamamoto, then they don't need to go and try to sign you know guys, more more normal free agents next year who are 30 or so in Corbin Burns or Max Freed or someone like that. So I think Yamamoto stood out. As unique to them. Uh, and that's why they went so hard after him. And, and I was a little surprised that, that the backup plan was, you know, Luis Severino and Adrian Hauser and, and Sean Maniah. I thought maybe they'd be uh, interested in some of the other kind of mid-level free agents in the starting pitching market, uh, but they didn't view them as, as worth the price in the same way they did with Yamamoto.
0: So let's talk about Mendoza. You mentioned the turnover in the front office. There's been just as much turnover in the dugout. And that's even if you don't count the distinguished Mets tenure of Carlos Beltran. So what do they think they're getting in Carlos Mendoza? Why was he the guy?
3: It's interesting because it's such a different uh, hire than the last one they made, which was Buck Showalter, who had so much of a a major league track record uh, over his time with four different teams prior to that. Uh, You know, Mendoza, they like the way he thinks about the game. Uh, they view him as someone who understands the market from his time as Aaron Boone's right-hand man, uh, in the Bronx. Uh, they think he knows, he, he, kind of balances the level of, of analytical insight that they want with, uh, a gut feel for the game. And they think he really connects well with players. That's what they want more than anything else is someone who can speak the language of the front office and speak the language, uh, of the players. Uh, and someone who really connected well with, with different players in the Yankees clubhouse, had good relationships across the board there. Uh, and they hope can repeat that dynamic, uh, as the head man in. In Queens now.
1: You mentioned Pete Alonso. And so I think maybe as we think about players, we can start on the infield and start with him. There's been there have been so many different kinds of rumors about Pete Alonso this offseason, from him getting extended to him getting traded. Where do you think the organization sits in terms of how they view his role going forward? Do you think that he's someone who will just be a Met in perpetuity? Are they going to be able to get an extension done? Or does he strike you as a potential trade candidate for them?
3: You know, I think from from what I've heard at this point is I would be surprised if anything materialized between now and the start of the season I think uh, the Mets are content to let Alonzo play out his final year and hit free agency hit the open market at the end of the season and Alonzo is happy to do that as well you know he's got Scott Boris as his agent now that was a change within the last year Boris clients traditionally do hit the open market at this point uh, in their careers you know I, I don't they're not Going to trade him before the start of the season for sure, uh, but you know you can imagine a scenario where the Mets are way out of it uh, come July thirtieth, uh, yeah. and they decide to you know some other team wants Pete Alonso and is willing to give you uh, a top hundred prospect or something like that for two months of him, and you you contemplate that. But what I've heard <laughs> is that the Mets are still interested in Pete Alonso long term, uh, even if they do not signed him to a contract extension before the season. Uh, they, they do view him as a long-term piece here and, and someone worth keeping around, not just because of his production on the field, but because of what he has meant to to this clubhouse and to the fan base over the last couple of years. The Mets haven't had a homegrown position player with quite Alonzo's skill set, maybe ever in yeah. their history. Uh, he's got a, a decent chance of becoming their all-time home run leader if he plays the next two seasons with them. You know They can kind of take the same approach they did with Brandon Nimmo. And, and Nimmo under similar circumstances, also switched to Boris the year before his platform season played out that year. Had a really nice year in 2022 for the Mets. Hit the open market, looked and, and saw what what else was out there. Uh, it looked for a time like like he was not going to return to the Mets, uh, and then they were able to hammer out a, a, a long-term eight-year deal for him that bested anyone else's offers. And I think the Mets might be well. You know, they're in the position; they have the luxury of. of matching other teams offers on the open market they can tell pete Alonso, hey go find it go find what else is out there and then if you give us the chance we'll match it or we'll beat it uh you know not a lot of teams have that luxury and and they showed that they could do that with Nimmo, and i think they'd be interested in doing that with Alonso as well
1: okay so that's good news for mets fans everyone can relax pete Alonso, forever met you heard it here first now i'm kidding but um you know with with first base sort of settled um you know, you have McNeil at second. I think that this team probably thought there would be more competition on the infield um, this spring before Ronnie Mauricio tore his ACL and is going to miss most of the season. So what does his injury mean for Brett Beatty, for Mark Vientos? How do you see that infield situation sorting out? And are they sort of content with the options they have at the big league level? Or might they look either to their farm or elsewhere for for reinforcement if, if Beatty isn't up to snuff?
3: It, it seems like they're content with their major league options at this point. And that at third base, that's Beatty. I think he's ahead of Vientos, uh, especially in terms of, of what he does defensively. I think there's still some, some pretty significant concerns over whether Vientos can play that position every day at the big league level. But it's reasonable. There's concerns about Beatty at the, to, to play that position defensively, yeah. the way he, he took a step back with his glove last year. Uh, You know, their hope is that this is a guy who was a top 25-ish prospect in the game before last season. They gave him a lot of time. They gave him a lot of runway to to seize that job last year, and it didn't work out. The OPS was under 600. He struggled defensively, looked kind of lost offensively. Uh, The ground ball rate, which had plagued him a bit in the minor leagues, he'd run 55% ground ball rates in the minors until 2022 when he got that under control. That popped back up above 50%. So it's kind of a sink or swim year for him. Stearns has been uh, pretty open about the the fact that he wants to use 2024. Part of taking the the little step back that they have taken is lo- getting a look at their younger players, and that that's that's Beatty. You know, they've got a pretty good sense of what Francisco Alvarez can be, and he's got a pretty good floor at catcher already. Uh, you know, it's yeah. Vientos maybe at designated hitter, splitting whether that's getting most of the starts there or, or splitting time with an incumbent like DJ Stewart, and that's maybe even seeing. You know, guys like Tyler McGill and, and David Peterson get more starts than than they might otherwise have gotten uh, in the rotation with uh, another group of another kind of crop of starting pitchers coming up behind them in AAA uh, and uh, the upper levels of the minor leagues now. So I, I think they they view 2024 as their opportunity. To, to see if Beatty can be the long-term answer at third, if Vientos can be a cheaper long-term answer at DH than, than going out and signing at J.D. Martinez. Uh, and if those guys do hit, well, then the the ceiling for this team looks a little bit different than it does in early February.
0: I think next winter, the Mets should try to avoid the pre-opening day season-ending knee injury to a key <laughs> player. I think that would be that'd be a great <laughs> change in strategy for them. I, I wonder how Steve Cohen, you think, looks back on the debacle that was 2023 from a process perspective. Is this something that is going to cool his enthusiasm for spending going forward? Does he look at that as, well, it made sense on paper, but it just all went wrong for reasons beyond our control? Or was it a flawed plan to begin with? What's kind of the takeaway, the (laughs) post-mortem? Because it it was kind of a death.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think he looks at it as, the plan was always for, for for Cohen to kind of to pay a lot up front uh, in free agency while the team built the farm system behind it. it. It's it's not that dissimilar from what Guggenheim Partners did in L.A. when they bought the Dodgers, when they beat out Cohen to, to buy the Dodgers last decade, where they made that huge trade with the Red Sox to take on a lot of salary and, and Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford and Josh Beckett. Uh, and we never forget Nick Punto. They used those guys as the core of their team while they tried to contend in the short term while they built up the farm system behind it. The Mets tried that as well. It, it worked well in 2022. It certainly didn't in 2023. I think, you know, from my perspective if you look back at it maybe the miscalculation was not knowing exactly how long that bridge was going to have to be that you know when they signed max scherzer to a three-year deal that they weren't necessarily going to have an ace level starting pitcher to replace him at the end of that deal the same thing with verlander uh, and that deal and and some of the uh, position player moves that they made were for guys who were older, shorter-term deals, like like for Eduardo Escobar and Marc and the, the regression that those guys showed in 23 was maybe not that surprising. Same with Starling Marte, who's a big question mark going into next year. Uh, he signed the four-year deal. I think maybe they kind of miscalculated the length of that bridge that they needed to, to spend a lot of money up front. Uh, maybe they would have gone about free agency a little bit differently, signed bigger names to five- or six-year deals at that point. There's certainly risk involved in that as well. But I think Cohen looks at it as that the money is still going to be there. It's still going to be worth it to make those kinds of free agent investments. But they just need to, to work a little bit harder on the farm system in the, in the short term now.
1: You mentioned some of the names that they signed uh, in lieu of Yamamoto once he went to L.A. Severino, Manaya. they brought in Hauser. So I'm curious sort of how you're conceiving of this rotation. Those guys all seem to have upside. They also seem to have pretty severe downside scenarios. So what are your expectations for them? How long are they going to be Mets? Do you think that these guys are potential trade candidates at the deadline if they pitch well? And. To add to a three-part question, who among their young guys down on the farm do you think we might see if I if any of these guys are moved or underperform?
3: Yeah, so we'll, we'll start. I think the the basic five-man rotation to start the season is probably uh, you know Kodai Senga. I would imagine is going to get the ball on opening day off of the the rookie season that he had, and then behind him you've got Jose Quintana, Severino, Manaya, and Hauser in some order. You know, I, th- I think they really like Severino's upside in particular. They think he's a guy who can be, a you know, a, a reasonable number two starter when he's at his best. And, you know, it, it's not that long ago that he was pretty good. You know, 2022, he threw about 100 really good innings for the Yankees. It's just been a while since he's thrown the 180 really good innings for a team. Yeah. You know, with, with Manaya they like the changes he made last year uh, and, and the performance that he had really like the last three and a half months of the season. Uh, Hauser, they view as kind of a guy who just brings up the floor, a guy who can give you 150 League average or slightly better innings over the course of a full season. Uh, that's a really useful piece to have when you're trying to eat innings. Beyond that, I mentioned McGill and Peterson. I think they re- they like Peterson a fair amount. They thought he was able to kind of put stuff together toward the end of last season. He unfortunately is going to miss the first part of the season after after offseason hip surgery. So it's going to be a little bit longer to get a look at him. But you know they might go with a, a an occasional six man rotation the way they did last year to kind of give Senga more extra rest, uh, and McGill would be the guy who would slot in at the start of the season. Another guy who has shown flashes as a starter, uh, you know, had a, a really strong start to the season in, in 2022 for them. The first the first month of the year, uh, they think he can be you know, that he has the stuff to be uh, a really good starter. At least two turns through the order, and they want to give him that one last opportunity. I think this season before deciding whether he's a, a reliever long term or not. And then beyond uh, kind of that group, they've got really five prospects who have not who have yet to debut in the major leagues that they're they think they're going to get some, you know, one or two of those guys is going to stand out uh, in the near future. Christian Scott is a guy who's making some top 100 prospect lists off a really nice season last year. I uh, didn't quite throw hundred innings though. So he's got to build up that, that innings base. Uh, Mike Vassel's is a guy who, who got to, got to triple a last year, a guy who's made some big strides since he was drafted out of Virginia. Uh, and then Dominic Hamill, Tyler Stewart, Blade Tidwell. These are other guys who had really nice years last year that could factor into their starting pitching depth, but, but probably not guys you're projecting to be, uh, you know, top of the rotation starters, at least in the near term.
1: Yeah, I, I pity the position players in their system because they have so many, you know, entrenched starters. But there's there's room for those uh, those prospects on the pitching side if they want to bring them up. Although a lot of those guys, forty man timelines, aren't for a while, so they have time to kind of slow play it if they want to.
3: Yeah, and it, it's been a while since you know Peterson is really the only homegrown starter, Peterson yeah. and McGill that they've produced. You know, dating back to. Noah Syndergaard and Stephen Matz in 2015 and 2016. Uh, it's been difficult for them to get consistent production out of their homegrown starters, even relievers actually, for that matter. Which is why kind of a, an increased focus on pitching development. They've got they they finally opened up a pitching lab years after saying they were going to. They opened that in June, and their hope is that that leads to more consistent development across uh, the minor league levels for them.
0: Sengo is great and they're really depending on him this year in a way that they weren't at least to enter last year, although he ended up being the, the bulwark, the stalwart of that rotation. He finished strong. Maybe it's just that he started not so strong and then was pretty great the rest of the way. Were there adjustments that he made, whether it was with his pitch mix or just handling the change in location and schedule and everything else that makes them optimistic that he could be even better potentially this year?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think they that he kind of got used to the, the the size of the baseball over the course of the season. So <laughs> yeah. if you look back at kind of the, the month of April, that's when he had his largest command issues. He was issuing three, four walks a start at that point. He once he got that under control, uh, you know, you, you saw early on that the stuff would play at the at the major league level. Uh, his his trademark ghost fork certainly uh, is a weapon for him, and we've seen splitters across the sport be really good weapons uh, for pitchers, and, and uh, that's why they like you know, his stuff, his repertoire so much. He he did tinker with his mix where he wasn't throwing his cutter quite as much uh, as the season went on. And so, you know, kind of figured it out. Uh, He was a guy who talked about uh, kind of adjusting to the level of analytical data that was available to him. Uh, That was something he was not used to uh, and something he had to kind of figure out what the right balance was because he kind of got lost in it uh, at times earlier on in the season. But I got a guy who I think found a really nice balance the last really four months of the season uh, when he was uh, among the best pitchers in the National League.
1: Ben alluded to the injury that Edwin Diaz suffered during the WBC. Where is Diaz, not only in terms of sort of the, the health of his leg, but also um, in his return to, to pitching?
3: Yeah, the, the Mets have said that he's had as close to a normal offseason as as he could. Uh, you know, he was rehabbing late in the season last year in September, uh, and there was some thought, you know, it. That he might get on the mound even with the Mets out of contention, if the Mets were in contention or, or a playoff team, I think that would have been more seriously considered. It's decided it wasn't worth it with them significantly under 500. But I do think that that Diaz should enter spring training as a mostly healthy pitcher. They'll they'll take their time with him because he's a reliever. You don't have to amp it up quite the same way right. as a starter does. But uh, I think they view him as as on track and and ready to be ready to go on on opening day.
0: Francisco Alvarez had an encouraging rookie season. I think everyone expected that he could hit, but maybe it was something of a surprise that he was as good with the glove as he was. He ranked third in the majors in framing, according to fan graphs, after Patrick Bailey and Austin Hedges. Was that something people saw coming? And what's the current evaluation of him on both sides of the ball?
3: considering how much the Mets talked about how he needed to stay in AAA to work on his defense I right. think it caught, <laughs> a lot of people by surprise yeah. uh you know that yeah. you're right that that Alvarez could hit at the major league level didn't take anyone by surprise but that he was that I was going to say competent but but well beyond that you know he was uh, among the very best in the game framing uh pitchers really liked working with him uh you know Carlos Carrasco had had thrown to him uh, a couple of years prior during a rehab start and said, "Going, you know, back in spring training, that, man, you can see a night and day difference in, in how he presents himself, how he presents his target, and how he works with a pitcher. Uh, he's really grown in just a couple of years, uh, and that's continued, so I think they're really excited about Alvarez as you know they, they were pretty excited at the start of last season when they, they didn't expect him to get much major league time uh, at, at least not in the first half of the season but for him to seize that that everyday job as the starting catcher for him to catch more games than he'd ever caught in a season before which probably explains why he got uh, why he slumped in the second half and, and the, the offensive numbers came down. he was pretty tired by that point in the year. Uh, but he now looks like kind of the all-around kind of catcher, uh, an all-star caliber player, maybe a guy who can get MVP votes if everything breaks properly for him over the next couple of years, uh, and a guy who maybe becomes that, that protector of Pete Alonso in the lineup in the middle of the order that they've lacked for the last couple of years.
1: When Harrison Bader is healthy and able to play, he's one of the better center field defenders in baseball. He isn't often healthy, at least not lately. But what does his addition mean for the outfield alignment that the Mets are looking at? And sort of what are their fallbacks there if he either uh, suffers another injury or if the bat is kind of the same level of anemic, shall we say, that it's been in the last couple of seasons?
3: Yeah, you know, one of the things the Mets really do think they've improved is their outfield defense, and that's because they brought in Bader. Uh, They added Tyrone Taylor from Milwaukee in that same deal that brought them Adrian Hauser. Uh, And they think Brandon Nimmo, while capable in center field, will be more of an asset to them defensively in left field. So I think you know, opening day, I would expect it to be Nimmo in left, Bader in center, uh, and Starling Marte in right, provided he's healthy, which which should be a better defensive outfield than the Mets have had in, in quite some time, really before Nimmo You know, Nimmo made adjustments to become a a quality center fielder uh, in the last several years. Before that, it had been like a five-year journey through the desert for the Mets to find someone who could play center field for them. You know, if if things don't work out with Bader, they've got Taylor as an option, as a guy who can play all three spots. They can shift Nimmo back to center uh, and play someone else in left. Uh, But they they are excited about the possibility of having uh, a plus outfield defense uh, in a way they really haven't in a long time.
0: It's my perception that Francisco Lindor has become a bit underrated, that we don't talk (laughs) about Lindor as much as we should. It seemed like he was among the many potential faces of baseball several years ago, and now maybe there are just so many rivals to that title that it's hard to stand out, but... He's been so good the last couple seasons, and I wonder whether Mets fans think that, whether there is kind of a a wider underrating of him going on, whether it's because of the shape of his seasons. I mean, he hasn't been an all-star either of the last two seasons, which, you know, means only so much. He ended up getting MVP votes in both of those seasons, so maybe it's just about the, the sequencing and the shape of those seasons again. But really, like, he has delivered two peak Lindor seasons in a row here after his initial not-as-great-for-him start with the Mets in 2021.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how long it can take to change fan perception of you in in New York when the first two months that you spend with the team after signing a $341 million deal are the two worst months of your career. Uh, And that's what what Lindor endured back in, in April and May of 2021. And really, ever since then, he has been the Francisco Lindor that he was in Cleveland, if not a little bit better. Uh, you know, there has been some uh, undulations to the way his seasons have gone. It, it you know, last season uh, his start was, was, Fine. It wasn't as bad as it was in 2021, but it wasn't. You know, it was it was reasonable for him not to make the All Star team uh, last year at the time they were voting. But you go from like mid June on. Who knows if it's coincidental or, or causal causational relationship. Uh, but since the birth of his second daughter in the middle of June last year, uh, Lindor was had the fifth best WAR in baseball. Uh, and he was only behind guys who played for for the Dodgers and Braves. So
0: having a newborn, it's
3: great for productivity. <laughs> everyone <laughs> everyone, everyone knows it. that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know he's been uh, really what what the Mets have had hoped for when they made that trade for him. You know he's really stabilized their infield defense. Still one of the game's best defensive shortstops in that time. He, he got back to hitting thirty home runs last year for the first time since he was in Cleveland. Uh, so he's been uh, everything they could have hoped for when they made that trade and extended him to that to that deal. Uh, it just hasn't coincided with them, you know, winning in the postseason the way that they had hoped.
0: And what about his double play partner, Jeff McNeil? He's coming off a down year for him, not a bad year, but after what he had done before that, it was uh, something of a come down. And, you know, there's been conversation about uh, did he try to change his approach? Is that a reason for his relative struggles? is there hope that he can get back to being if not the 350 Babbitt guy of 2022 at least somewhere in between where he was that year and last year he
3: he is such a tough guy to analyze because yeah. he kind of breaks the models you look at at what he did you know, over the course of his career now, so we've got data going back to 2018. From 2018 to 2020, the the, the batting average always outperformed his expected numbers. The BABIP was high, uh, and then in 2021, it all kind of came crashing down on him. He had uh, a really a rough season that year. Uh, he rebounds from that in, in 22. Every, <laughs> everything outperforms its indicators again, and then in 23, he, he comes crashing down again. The good news for McNeil is that he's rebounded from a very similar season like this before to win the batting title the following year, uh, when he went from 21 to 22. The bad news is that okay, this is two of the last three years now where, where you know he hasn't been able to kind of make contact and and you know punch the ball the other way and, and do those kinds of things that that get him on base on a regular level that make him so different than a, than you know, anyone else in the league, really, the way he approaches the game offensively. Uh So I, I know talking to to hitting coaches who have coached him, they say you kind of let Jeff do what he wants to do because he's got such an innate ability to put the bat on the ball uh, that sometimes you don't want to get too far into his head. You don't want him to do too much prep work. You don't want him to do too much tinkering. You just want him to kind of figure it out and find himself. He was able to do that in, in, in 2022 coming off a bad season, and the Mets are hopeful he can do that again.
1: Already asked about Diaz, but I'm curious about the rest of that bullpen because. There have been a couple of, well, there have been some auditions, right? So they bring in Fujinami. They brought back Ottavino after he opted out of his player option. We should talk about the, the TikTok of that perhaps. Um, so what are your expectations for this group going forward? Um, I guess they also brought in Jake Diekman, didn't they? Jake Diekman. He's a podcast fave. But, um, what are, what are your expectations for this group behind Diaz? And can you tell us what went on with Ottavino's player option, please?
3: Yeah, so we'll start with Adovino. So he, he had a $6.5 million player option for uh, the 24 season that he declined in early November, in part because $4 million of that was going to be deferred money. Uh, and so he, was, he, at the time, was trying to renegotiate with the Mets to get more of that money up front, even if it was a lower guarantee overall. He was uh, a little bit concerned that he would accept the player option and then be traded somewhere where he didn't want to go, and uh, he could not get uh, the the Mets to tell him that no, we will not trade you if you if you opt in. Uh, so he opted out and ended up signing for four and a half million dollars. Uh, so a lower amount, but all of that is up front. So it's uh, it's less total value than he would have had uh, with the the initial player option, but. Uh, I don't think he's uh, crying over the the difference at this point. He's he's happy uh, to be staying in New York with the bullpen as a whole. It's a different kind of composition than what they had going into last season. Certainly losing Diaz last season made the bullpen (laughs) overall much worse. This year, I think it's kind of a flatter bullpen. Last year you had, at least going in, you had Diaz and Robertson, Adovino and and Brooks Raley. Those were kind of the four guys you were going to count on late in games. The other half of the bullpen, you didn't really know what you were going to get. You had some guys with options, some guys uh, who were carrying because they were out of options, guys who had less of a major league track record. This year, they've got Probably fewer guys you know going into the season, you're going to say, okay, well, that's going to be the eighth inning guy on opening day because it, it's still Diaz, Adovino, Raley. They've added Diekman, They've added Fujinami, like you said. Uh, Jorge Lopez uh, is here. You know, they've, they've got maybe, I, th- I think, the fifth through eighth options. And really going beyond that, fifth through twelfth options are probably in a better place than they were going into last season. But maybe you're not quite as sure who one through four or really two through four are uh, in front of Diaz as, as the bridge.
0: So we always end these by asking what constitutes success for this team in 2024. Obviously, coming into last year, it would have been make the playoffs, win the World Series. Didn't go that way. This year, it's maybe a more complicated question. So I don't know whether Steve Cohen actually used this word, but Max Scherzer said that Cohen had described this as a transitory year. (laughs) Aren't all years transitory when you think about it, but but what are they hoping for this year and i guess how do they see things then building up to a really top of the line contender beyond that
3: well we we did a, a fan survey at the athletic and i asked you know what what How many wins do the Mets need to have for this to be a successful season? Uh, And the overwhelming response was whatever it took to get into the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think from a fan perspective, that's probably what what is success uh, is getting back to playing uh, October baseball. I think from an organizational viewpoint, uh, you know, there's there's different. The Mets would be happier winning 83 games and just missing out on the playoffs if if Beatty looks like a. The, the kind of star that they think he might be. If Fientos looks like a capable everyday player, if some of those younger pitchers take steps forward, then you know, if if all of those guys fall flat on their face and and Joey Wendell leads them to 86 wins and and a, a, a first round wild card loss, uh, I think they the the organization would prefer to have some some bigger steps forward for future years rather uh, than the immediate success this year if if they had that option. Okay. well, you can
0: follow this kind of confusing, conflicting (laughs) (laughs) 2024 Mets season. Hopefully it'll go better than the last one. Seems like it couldn't go much worse. Follow it at The Athletic, where Tim Britton will be covering the Mets all year long. Thanks very much, Tim.
3: Oh, thanks for having me on.
0: All right, and speaking of the Mets, to make room for the addition of Jake Diekman, Austin Adams was designated for assignment. He was Meg's second round pick in the minor league free agent draft. Might still stay in the organization if he passes through waivers, but he's now the second guy who was on a major league deal taken in the minor league free agent draft who has since been removed from the 40-man roster. The Angels outrighted Adam Kalerick last month to make way for Zach Plesac. We talked about Bobby Witt Jr. as a forever Royal and Clayton Kershaw as a forever Dodger. We did not talk about Jose Altuve. Altuve as a forever astro, but after we recorded, he signed a five-year extension, $125 million guarantee. Jose Altuve will be an astro for life, the astros tweeted. I'm sure a lot of people who are still upset about sign stealing said, great you can keep him. I know he seemingly stole signs less than his teammates did. Maybe he didn't even want the signs. However, he was there and he didn't exactly raise the alarm. And hey, here's a follow-up from episode 1984 inspired by the player Ichiro Kano. We did a stap last about the highest value names that were mashups of two other player names in terms of career war. Well, Ichiro Kano just signed with the Reds. Happy birthday, Ichiro Kano, who turns 19 this week. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five lists have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going help us stay ad-free and get themselves access to some perks. Evan Rice Matthew Brownlee, Tom Deaver David Foster, and Laura Brown. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. Monthly bonus episodes, prioritized email answers, playoff live streams discounts on merch and ad-free fangrass memberships and so much more. Check out all the options at patreon.com effectivelywild effectively wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon. If not, you can still contact us via email, send your questions and comments to podcastoffancrafts.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com group Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll have another preview pod later this week, but not next time. And to take us out, we have an outro theme submission by listener Dave Sachs, who goes by Indoor. Recess, in homage to Ben Gibbard's old band All Time Quarterback, this is an effectively wild themed cover of the Postal Service song Such Great Heights, which Dave calls On Field Mics. Hi.